go ahead and we'll get started as we uh, tie up and finish the book of Mark this week. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 14 as part of the lesson, but we'll look at the last few verses as well um, because, well, you'll see when we get there. I'll just leave it at that. This is session 13. Uh, Jesus is alive. Jesus' empty tomb attests to his resurrection. As we come to this, we're greatly familiar with the story. Um, but I think we want to look at some of the facts that we think we know and ponder their meaning in light of a few things. So we'll do that this morning. As we come to chapter 16, we're faced with a dilemma of whether or not it's true. When you look at historical literature, nobody really questions that, do they? If you read the biography of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, do you ever pick it up and go, I wonder if this is really true? <laughs> Maybe one nugget in there, you might think, well, I wonder if he really chopped down that cherry tree. <laughs> All right? Uh, you know, well, he probably did. Somewhere along in his life, he probably chopped down a cherry tree. Um, but, you know, did that really happen? But when we come to the Bible, when we come to Scripture, every little thing is challenged, is that really true? Did that really happen? Did so-and-so really say that? It is the most questioned book. But as we look at it, the historistory, historistory of it, historicity is, um, is undeniable. The veracity of scripture is such that we have more copies that are older than any other piece of literature. Proving that it, what was written was what was written that was written. Um, and it's written by eyewitness accounts. But even more so, as we come to the beginning of this chapter, it doesn't even make sense. When we look at scripture, what would be normal, we don't find it. As we look at Israel, the history of Israel, where did they come from? Ur. They, okay, Abraham came from Ur. But um, the, the nation, where did the nation come from? From God? Didn't they say Well, no. Israel? No, that's where they went to. Where did they start out as a nation? Where did they start out? In Egypt, as what? Slaves. Slaves. So this, the, the history of the nation of Israel is we were slaves to the Egyptians, right? Now, think about it. Dig out your, uh, into the darkest recesses of your mind. Every other nation, where do they come from? The ruling class. The ruling class, okay. They're usually descendants of... The 
The Greeks were the offspring of Zeus. The Romans were the offspring of the god of war. Even the Koreans, they, they, were, they came from the god. They were the first people created by the gods. All of them. I mean, you go, you go through all the ancient peoples. They all were descendant of gods, and they were, or this hero, or this, they come from some grand, highfalutin position and all that. Where did Israel come from? Slaves. We were slaves. How, I mean, you see how flipped that is? Everybody else claims to have come from some exalted place. And they did it themselves, right? You know, the Gilgamesh epic and all of those ancient uh, stories. Story of Hercules. All the, They were amazing. They were fierce warriors. They did it themselves. They pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. Who saved Israel? How'd they get out of Egypt? God. God. God sent Moses and released the ten plagues, right? And over and over and over again, Egypt said, no, we're not letting you go. No, you're not going to go. No, you're not going to go. Finally, they kicked them out of Egypt. And they get to the Red Sea, and they're stuck. And so they turned, and they slaughtered the Egyptians to free themselves, right? <laughs> now, what happened? Oh, yeah, they parted. It was, it was this God again. God did it. Parted the Red Sea. And then he wiped out all the Egyptians, right? They had absolutely nothing to boast in. So they get to the nation of Canaan, and they find giants. And they're terrified, and they run away. And God says, okay, you're going to wander for 40 more years because you're not ready to go into the land, right? And then they go into the land, and they get to Jericho, and it's got huge walls. And who destroyed Jericho? They don't even get to take credit for it. They marched around silently for seven days. This is, this is why we come to this and we go, is this really true? Is this really believable? Because every other history is, we were so powerful. We rolled up and we knocked down the walls. We just blew on it. We often fought, right? It's all about me and how we were so great and all that. We're a great nation. We're a powerful nation. Israel has nothing to boast in, do they? Except for what? God. They can only boast in their God, yeah. So here we come to the end of Mark. And this story is outrageous. Jesus is alive. Didn't last week we just see he died? How's he alive? He's dead. Dead is dead. Done. Dusted. But he's alive. So with that introduction... We come to the most questioned passage in all of Scripture, which we just have a real tough time as people buying into this whole thing. Now, let's uh, have a little reminder, and not the kind of reminder you have for your children. Um, the timeline, and I've showed you this several times the Western traditional and the Eastern Jewish timeline. Friday was not the day of the crucifixion. We gotta go back to Wednesday. So Wednesday morning, Jesus stood before Pilate, was tried, convicted, and crucified dead by three o'clock. Thursday, he spent the day in the tomb. 
Friday, spent the day in the tomb. Friday night was the beginning of Sabbath. So Saturday, he's in the tomb. Saturday at 6 p.m. was the end of the Sabbath. Now, we don't know when Jesus left the tomb, but I'm guessing that he didn't stay there one minute more than he had to. So at probably 6.01 p.m. Saturday night, he was out of the tomb. But nobody knows because they were all finishing up the Sabbath meal and bedded down for the night. So there we have these. Then we have Sunday morning, right? Sunday morning, Jesus is going to be discovered not to be in the tomb. All right? Any questions on, on that as we look? All right. So with that said, let's turn to Mark chapter 16. Somebody read verses 1 to 4. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. These gals, they've been sheltering in the city somewhere. And the day before the day of the Sabbath, they had gone and acquired all the spices and stuff they needed to embalm the body. Because if you remember, Jesus died at 3 o'clock and they only had three hours to get him wrapped up and put in the tomb and sealed before the start of the Sabbath because they could not be out and about doing stuff because it was the Sabbath. So they had hastily wound him up in linen after they took him down, they probably washed the body because, I mean, he was filthy. Let's face it, the scourging, the crown of thorns, all the all the stuff associated with it, the blood that would have been covering him because nobody was cleaning him. He marched through the city, probably naked and all that, and then hung for six hours in the blazing sun. Uh, well, it would have only been three hours because then there were three hours of darkness, but... Uh, it's baked on him. So they probably cleaned the body and wrapped it in the linens, carried him to wherever Joseph of Arimathea's tomb is, and sealed it up because they only had three hours. So they come, and they have that Sabbath. That was a high Sabbath because of the holiday, the, the uh, Passover. And then the next day was the day of preparation for the weekly Sabbath. And the women went and got all the stuff, but there wasn't time to go to the tomb. And so the Sabbath happened again, and they do that. So early that morning, they go up, and they get there, and the stone has been rolled away. What we know is Jesus is being sought. They want to find him. They want to embalm the body and all that. So they come looking for him. But from all that we can tell, he was gone probably the night before. His three days and three nights in the tomb were up, and he left. 
was gone. Not there. The women were amazed because they had concern for the stone. Now, concern for the stone because it was so heavy. Now, here's the question. Why was the stone rolled away? So they can... I can say it. again, Bruce? To let us in. To let us in. Yeah. Yeah. You ever contemplate that? Oh. You ever considered that? Jesus rose from the dead. Did he need to walk out of the door? No. No, no because we know in, a, in just in a little while, he's going to walk into rooms through the wall. He didn't need the stone rolled away. The stone rolled away is for us so that we could enter. He knew the women were coming and that they couldn't roll it away. That's their whole concern. Their whole, their whole thing is, how are we going to move this stone? It's huge. It's heavy and all that. There was great concern about this amongst them. Jesus took care of it. You ever considered that? We all get excited that he rose from the dead. He didn't just rise from the dead. He wants us to find him missing in the tomb. Mm -hmm. He made it as easy as pie, didn't he? Yep. He rolled the stone away. He moved it so we could find that he wasn't there. So that the women could walk in and go, where'd he go? And then they begin looking for him to find out where he is. He was gone from the night before. There's concern over the stone. But then Mark doesn't deal with it. Where are the guards? Remember? Yeah. Mark doesn't deal with that, does he? No. Where were the guards? There's no mention here by Mark. What happened to them? The earthquake? There had been an earthquake? What happened to that? There's a whole lot of things Mark doesn't tell us, does he? Why? He thought the resurrection might be more important. Yeah. The fact that the tomb was empty and prepared for us to find, that was what was important. That's what we're supposed to find when we come here. There's lots and lots of conspiracy theories out there about what happened and all that. There was a Jesus day. Remember the uh, Sanhedrin? What did they tell the Roman guards to do? Lie. Lie. Tell them somebody came and stole the bodies. Tell them you fell asleep. We'll pay you. We'll smooth it over with Pilate. Just make up a story. Because what was the important thing? That no one discovered he's missing. Yeah, that, well, that we discovered that he was missing. That the tomb was empty. That was what was important. That we find the empty tomb. The explanation is going to come in a minute as we move forward in the passage. But this is the whole idea. He wanted us to know where that tomb was, and he wanted us to know that it was empty. And the fact of the matter is, is that he did it. He set the whole thing up. It was a setup. It really is. Oh, we're going to kill him. Yep, I want to die. Go ahead, kill me. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to rise from the dead. I want you to know I did. I got up. You told me to get off the cross. I did even one better. I got out of the tomb. Yeah. You think about it. The whole day they kept yelling at him. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Come down off the cross. That's not a big deal. Let me show you a really big deal. 
I'm going to let you bury me, and I'm going to be dead for three days, and then I'm going to get up. You ever think about it that way? That's pretty cool. It is. When you start really thinking about what happened, he's totally thumbing it in their face. <laughs> you thought that would be a cool miracle? No, let me show you a really cool miracle. Me rising from the dead. You stuck a spear in my side. Everybody saw that, right? Blood gush oozing out everywhere. You beat me. You whipped me. You crucified me. And then you buried me, sealed the tomb up, and left guards. And I still got out. <laughs> just, think of, uh, just, just think about it from Jesus' perspective, because all the mocking he took. All the beatings, like he couldn't even move. Yeah, and he, and he, he knows what's coming. Just wait, just wait. you got to wonder if he was kind of smiling into himself. <laughs> I'm going to get you. Just, just wait. You're going to have to deal with this. Wait till you got to deal with this because they deal with it. They're still dealing with it, aren't they? Yes. <clears throat> He's still having the last laugh. <laughs> Everybody gets so serious and all that. No, this is amazing. This is joyful. This should be good. All right, let's move on. Mark chapter 16, 5 through 8. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You gotta love it. He leaves a guy sitting there waiting for them. See, when you look at it from this, this perspective, what's going on, it becomes quite amusing. He knew, he knows what's going on. Waiting for them. How long have you been sitting there? Since the night before when Jesus came and got out? Mm -hmm. Hey, you, come here. Sit here. Tell them when they come. I'm going to go meet them. This is the key, though. These three verses are... Three, five, six, seven. Yeah, three verses are the key. Not because Jesus is risen. I mean, that's, that's important. But what the message is, that's, that's what's going to be. Um, why was the stone moved? So that we would get that message. So they would get that message. So that they would spread that message that he's not there. We find a young man in white. Mark doesn't call him an angel. The other Gospels list him as an angel. But Mark just says that he's a young man in white. Um, which is interesting and telling. There's a lot of argument among scholarship about that. Um, I don't think it's a big deal. Oftentimes, angels are described as people in, in white. Abraham, when they came to him, he, they weren't. It wasn't just like they were. Oh, they were angels and all that. They were men in white that had stopped by. It, it's usual. I don't think it's a big deal. There are serious critical scholarship as takes issues with it. I don't think we need to worry about it. We come to the message, though, and that's where I want to camp. 
disciples and Peter. Let's talk about the disciples for a minute. Jesus has just pulled the greatest coup d'etat ever. We killed him. It's done. It's dusted. We're now in power and control, the religious leaders thought, right? Not coming back. He's not an issue anymore. He's dead. Come and find the tomb open. Body missing. And there's a messenger. And the message that the messenger has isn't go round up all the evil people so that, that they can be executed. It's go tell my disciples. Now those disciples, when was the last time Jesus saw the nine? Passover dinner? Not a little later. On the way to the garden. Yeah, at the garden of Gethsemane, he left them at the gates. Remember? They were there. He left them. Told them to stay there. And he took three with him. Who were the three? Peter, James, and John. Come with me. Let's go a little farther into the garden. And then what happened? They fell asleep. They fell asleep. So they're sleeping. Jesus is in great agony over what's about to happen. And then what happened? Nope, not before that. The guards come. The guards come. Yeah. The guards come to the gate. Where? Who's at the gate? The disciples. The nine, right? They're there. Eight. Well, eight. You're right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> eight. It's the eight. Judas has already gone off to go hang himself. Eight disciples sitting at the gate. Guards come. Jesus walks up. Now, Mark doesn't record it for us, but we know that uh, Jesus is concerned for the eight. He tells the guards he'll go with them, leave these alone. And what do they do? What's their response? They ran. They ran, except for? Peter. Peter, who drew a sword and cut an ear off, right? Yeah. The eight run. Here is their master, the one that they claimed they would follow, who they had just had dinner with, and made all sorts of claims. And the guards show up, and their first thought is to run. They've abandoned him. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Tell his disciples the invitation is most gracious as directed to them. For they all forsook him and fled on that night. That doleful night when he most needed company, they slept. And when he was taken off to the hall of Caiaphas, they fled. Those disciples. Jesus just rose from the dead. And his message is, go find those disciples. Go tell them that I will meet them. In Galilee. That's his, that's his message. Go tell them. These guys, these eight, or well, I guess it's uh, a, a eleven. All of them? Nine. Nine. Or ten, rather. Because he says they had Peter. Why does it why does Peter get a special invitation? 
He had denied him three times. He denied him three times. He didn't just deny him, did he? No. He denied his Lord to the point that he cursed him as he denied him. After the boisterous self-confidence of his claim that he was willing to die for him, and a maid who was just making a jest, he calls down a curse upon his Lord and Master because of his fear, his terror. And here's the messenger. Go find my disciples and Peter. Bring them, tell them to meet me in Galilee. That's significant. When we talk about salvation, we often think that I'm, I, I've done too many or too much or committed such heinous crimes or so-and-so committed too heinous a crime. We begin adding it up and tallying it and going, I, I, I can't, I can't do it. I can't be saved. That person could never come to the Lord. When we tally heinous crimes, the 12 are the worst of the worst, aren't they? One of them is the actual person to give him up. Jesus gave him up. Jesus still washed his feet. You understand that? Hours before Judas would go and betray him, Jesus, Jesus, the king of the universe, got down on hands and knees and washed Judas' feet. And he still goes and does that. Heinous crime? Yeah. He never looks for forgiveness, though, does he? Mm -hmm. Do you think he would have got it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get the, the, the others... The other ten, they all run away. Those who've been following him, city to city, issue to issue, trial by trial, they follow him. And it comes to this, they run away. He needs them, but they're gone. Yet he forgives them. Heinous crime. Running away. Cowardice. And he said, calls and sends for them. And then we come to Peter, the last, who sort of runs away, but sort of doesn't. But at the end, in the moment of greatest need, denies, not once, not twice, but three times even knowing him, and curses him with a curse. Can you imagine cursing the Christ? And we know from other, from other Gospels, at that moment the cock crows and Jesus turns and looks at him. Can you imagine that stare? <laughs> and the message from the grave, go find my disciples and Peter. Could there be a greater call to forgiveness? than that. 
So then how is it that we can't forgive others? Heinous criminals, ridiculous politicians, people who, who are just absolutely mean and nasty to us. Does any of it compare to this? Because we're called to forgive. See, this is, when we look at this and what happens, it's a great story, and we look at it from our perspective of, yep, he forgave me. This is what cleanses me. But when we understand he's forgiven those who committed the most heinous of all crimes against him, we stand called to him. Are we ready to accept him? Are we ready to accept others who've been called to him? I think we got this idea that there are like really bad sins, high sins that are unforgivable, and they're not. Not when we put them in comparison. When we really understand what happened at the cross, and we see Jesus' forgiveness, we get an understanding. Comment, question. Go ahead. Uh, just like what you're saying, and in my own mind, how he said he called his disciples and Peter. I put my own name there. And it kind of, it's a humbling, makes it a humbling story. Because then, you know, it's the disciples and. Yeah, he includes you. And if Judas had been alive and had asked forgiveness, well, I think we would have seen Judas's name there too. All right, Mark chapter 9, or chapter 16, 9 through 14. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard what, that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to, to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Okay. So here starts our challenge. From 9 to verse 20, don't actually exist in the earlier manuscripts of Mark. <coughs> it is a dilemma because it seems to be an addition to what Mark actually wrote, which we know that Peter gave to him. As we look at this, there are several things. Mark ended with the call for the disciples to meet him in Galilee. That's where we believe that Mark finished penning this letter and that this was attached trying to finish it off because it seemed to be an incomplete story. Did they go? Remember, this is the first gospel written. And as uh, Mark relates this, I'm sure it raised questions. I mean, you ever read one of those books and you got to wait for the second 
the, yeah. the next book to come out to find out what happened to the main character. It's annoying, isn't it? Very. Very. Especially if the author only writes one book a year. Yeah. Or they go on hiatus for a couple of years because they decide to have a baby or something. Yeah, it can be really annoying. So somebody adds these verses to it so that they'll know what happened. Verse 9, we know that this about Mary Magdalene. We know this happened. It is recorded by the other Gospels, particularly John tells us about it. So it's not really a big deal, is it? We know it happened. It's true. We're going to see in a minute, we're going to continue on uh, beyond verse 14 to look at those because those become even a little more bizarre. Um, we see that uh, Mary, Jesus appeared to her. We know that. We saw that in John when we did John last year. Um, we know that after these things, we know that two of the disciples were out walking. They were heading um, to Joppa. They were on that road. Jesus shows up, and he asks what's going on. And they're like, what, are you the only guy that, that doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem? And they go through the whole story and all that. And when he then at the end, Jesus says, well, I'm, I'm, it's me. It's Jesus. And they go, and they all run back to town, right? <laughs> so we know that happened. Others record that for us. Mark apparently didn't put that in here. But they go ahead and put that in here. Then we come and uh, we get the afterwards. He appeared to the 11 as they reclined. We know that happened. That's recorded by Luke for sure. And others, again, that's how the story ends, right? They go to Galilee. They have dinner. And Jesus shows up, Thomas gets, I mean, they don't even put that in about the whole thing with Thomas doubting and all that. They just jump to the, he shows up and they see him and all that. Because we know that Jesus was sought. We know that he rose, but that doesn't do us any good if he isn't seen. Jesus is seen. He's not just seen by one person. It isn't just Mary, is it? No, he appears to the disciples. And then he's later, he's going to appear to up to his 500-some people. Actually, it would just probably be men. Whatever women and children were there would have been as well. But Mary saw, but nobody believed. <coughs> now, we're talking about <coughs> believing something that happened. In the ancient world, particularly among the Israelites, those who were Jews, um, women were untrustworthy. They were considered to not be able to tell the truth in a court of law. So their testimony was, quite frankly, unbelievable. And so they could not and were not called as witnesses. The fact that Jesus chose Mary to be the first person to see her is significant. Now, I find it significant that he uses a woman because it follows the pattern that I started with, doesn't it? Everything in God's economy is upside down. The Israelites are descended from slaves, not gods, not powerful heroes. They did not save themselves. They were saved by God. The country that they went and conquered, they didn't do it themselves. It was done by God. Over and over and over again, that's what we see. 
God does it, and he doesn't do it the way anybody thinks it ought to be done, so that nobody can claim responsibility but God. So we see here, he comes first, the first person to witness his risen form, Mary. A woman. Unbelievable. Nobody believes her. But she knows. She got the truth. She saw him. So like God, isn't it? Do the unexpected. Over and over and over again, we see it through Scripture. And it ends the same way. Is that funny? Secondly, we see that he goes to two of the disciples, and they don't believe at all. Mary believed. Mary believed. But the two that should have known better, he explains the whole thing to them as they're sitting there, and they don't believe it. And then he shows and reveals himself, and now, now they believe. But they didn't understand. How can this be true? We saw you die. You're, you were dead. Dead is dead, right? And then we see one more time that he does. He comes and he appears to all of them. And they finally believe. They finally begin to understand. The resurrection, we think of it as just such a simple thing. And we're going to have Easter here in just a few weeks. There's so much going on in it. Don't lose all the detail. Because it is so important, the fact that he calls the disciples and that he calls Peter and that he doesn't come down off the cross, that he gets out of the tomb, which is even a greater miracle. And those are the things that we need to take and remember as we look through this story as we see this. That wraps up the story, but there's still a few more verses. I want to look at verses 15 through 20. I won't ask you to read them. I'll, I'll deal with them because these are tacked on. We don't know by whom. We don't know exactly when. But the oldest copies of the book of Mark do not include these. And I want you to see why they, they shouldn't, we, we should not take them to be um, of much use. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. I don't think we have any issue with that, right? Mm -hmm. that, that fits everything else in scripture and its teaching. But when we get to verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. By whoever does not believe will be condemned. The word, the word believes is a good word. We know that John teaches this. That's his whole part of his gospel, right? That's the reason he wrote the book of John. Was so that we would believe, that we would understand. But this idea, and, is baptized. Is salvation based on your baptism? No. Is there anywhere else in Scripture that tells us that you will be condemned if you're not baptized. No. Somebody added this in at some point because they had a belief. 
I'm, I'm pointing these out because I want you to understand that when people add to Scripture, it becomes very dangerous. Because according to this statement in verse 16, you have to be believing and baptized in order to be saved or you're condemned. You're going to hell. There are a lot of churches out there that teach that, don't they? Aren't there? <laughs> Starting with all the Orthodox churches. You have to be, you have to believe and be baptized. And most of those, it, it's at birth. You know, you, you baptize the babies and all that. Where does it come from? Right here. Somebody added this. We know that it's been added because we have older copies and it wasn't there. This is what churns that higher criticism by secular scholars. Oh, well, this isn't in the early, so the rest of it's not good either. Well, that's not true. This has just been tacked on at the end because there was beliefs. Verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will cast out demons and they will speak in new tongues. Where do we see that? Yeah, the, the Pentecostal movement. That was a big deal. Verse 17 is not, is not part of the original text. But they come here and they go, oh yeah, look at this. This is where we get this. And we get this whole idea. Is it possible that this would happen? Yes. But is it something that happens to everybody? No. 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 We don't find it anywhere else in Scripture. This is where when we have Scripture, it has to line up with other scripture and we get this here we know this didn't wasn't part of the original and when we study all the scripture together we know that this isn't true verse 18 they will pick up serpents with their hands and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover wow yeah i wish that were true there are denominations particularly in the appalachian region mm -hmm of this country that actually practice serpent handling. They will get rattlesnakes and they will dance around with them and all that because they believe this. This is not part of the original text. And it was added by someone. Did this sort of thing happen? Yes, we have the story of Paul. He got bit by the poisonous snake. Everybody thought he would die and he doesn't die. But does that mean it's true for all of us? No. No. So when we come to this verse 18, uh, they will, you're not, see, because the whole thing is chained together. If you believe and you've been baptized, then this is, you'll be able to cast out demons, you'll be able to speak new tongues, you'll be able to pick up snakes, and all. Yes, all of it is possible. Is it all probable? No. It isn't a guarantee. Verse 19, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Yeah, we know that happened. Go ahead, George. Um, George, listen to me. Bruce. My name's Bruce. Yeah. I looked right past you and saw George. <laughs> uh, now, my addition here, which, okay. But it's a red letter edition, as though Jesus said this. But no, yeah, exactly. There's there, there's some serious question with this, and like I said, the scholarship has found that these are not in the oldest 
manuscripts. This verse, 19, we know this happened. Luke records it for us and the others, that he was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand. That We find that all through Scripture, this idea, him sitting at the right hand. We go all the way back to Daniel and Isaiah. They saw it. All right, so this part's true. See, we've sandwiched in some stuff that's quite questionable. <coughs> and they went out, verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the accompanying signs. Well, isn't that the whole book of Acts? Yeah. But this section in between, it has no basis. It has no... But does that mean we can throw out all the scripture just because somebody tacked on a few verses at the end of Mark and tried to pass them off? No. No, we have people doing that today, don't we? There are many churches out there and individuals who add to the gospel or make claims about the gospel that are not true. It doesn't mean that the gospel itself isn't true, that our Bibles are untrustworthy, or any of that. Just because men do things. We know what God intended. We have so many copies. So much documentation. And so much archaeology now. That proves this to be true. That a few things that were tacked on the end of places. Should not concern us. Or worry us. Question. more things. Let me throw in a little doctrine this morning for us. Jesus was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucifixion. That is the essence. That is what is critical to our belief. That Jesus rose from the dead. That his body was glorified and that he was the same person that was crucified. Because the Gnostics had this whole belief that he, that he was just a spirit and then that he embodied some guy who died. And then he embodied somebody else after his three days. That, that, that's all baloney. Baloney on baloney. Jesus was raised from the dead. If you take nothing else from this, take this. That's what the truth is. Everything else is just the cream on top. Go ahead. I was going to say, I know some Christians that because of the verses that we read earlier, how Jesus appeared in different forms, mm -hmm. that they believe that's the basis then for reincarnation. That we come back and if Jesus comes back in other forms, we too will come back in other forms. Yeah, he didn't come back in other forms. He came back in a glorified body that is just like the body that he had. The body was missing from the tomb. But it's like how people can... They just twisted, just, just as we just saw. People twisted the Gospel of Mark with a couple of things they stuck in there for their own edification. That's what's true. That's what we boil it down to be. Other comments or questions? All right. Finally, 
couple of things to take with us as we leave the book of Mark. First, the empty tomb reminds us that Jesus experienced a real and physical death. That's important. He understands all the suffering, pain, agony that we go through in life. Whether it be from sickness to death itself. He knows. He's been there, done that, got the t-shirt and a new body to put on. <coughs> Secondly, the empty tomb demands a response. Not just from us, but every person we come in contact. We've got to do something about it. We're either going to accept it and believe it, or we're going to turn away and deny it with all our might. And lastly, the empty tomb calls to all people to believe. That was why the stone was removed, so that we could see and believe. That's why it's empty. We are called to believe. All are called, and few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for this chance to trek through with Mark as he records Peter's thoughts on those years that he spent with the Christ. From the highest, loftiest, glorified peak where he saw Jesus glorified before him, to the depths of despair where he sees him crucified and curses him not knowing. Lord, we are no different. We range the gambit. We glory in you. We deny you. We are confronted by those and we shirk away. Lord, we're no different. We know the same call to us is that come meet with you in Galilee Lord help us to remember we are one of your disciples that we are forgiven what we've done to you Lord let us worship you in that manner knowing that you have forgiven us of the heinous things that we have done to you in Jesus name Amen, Amen.